Macaon by E.F. Benson Read by Richard Crowest I was returning at the close of the short winter day from my visit to St. James's Hospital, where my old servant Parks, who had been in my service for twenty years, was lying. I had sent him there three days before, not for treatment, but for observation, and this afternoon I had gone up to London to hear the doctor's report on the case. He told me that Parks was suffering from an internal tumour, the nature of which could not be diagnosed for certain, but all the symptoms pointed directly to its being cancerous. That, however, must not be regarded as proved. It could only be proved by an exploratory operation to reveal the nature and extent of the growth, which must then, if possible, be excised. It might involve, so my old friend Godfrey Symes told me, certain tissues and would be found to be inoperable, but he hoped this would not be the case and that it would be possible to remove it. Removal gave the only chance of recovery. It was fortunate that the patient had been sent for examination in an early stage, for thus the chances of success were much greater than if the growth had been one of long standing. Parks was not, however, in a fit state to stand the operation at once. A recuperative week or ten days in bed was advisable. In these circumstances, Symes recommended that he should not be told at once what lay in front of him. "'I can see that he is a nervous fellow,' he said, "'and to lie in bed thinking of what he has got to face "'will probably undo all the good that lying in bed will bring to him. "'You don't get used to the idea of being cut open. "'The more you think about it, the more intolerable it becomes. "'If that sort of adventure faced me, "'I should infinitely prefer not to be told about it "'until they came to give me the anaesthetic. "'Naturally, he will have to consent to the operation, "'but I shouldn't tell him anything about it till the day before.' "'He's not married, I think, is he?' "'No, he's alone in the world,' said I. "'He's been with me twenty years.' "'Yes, I remember Parks almost as long as I remember you. "'But that's all I can recommend. "'Of course, if the pain became severe, it might be better to operate sooner, "'but at present he suffers hardly at all, and he sleeps well, so the nurse tells me. "'And there's nothing else that you can try for it?' I asked.' "'I'll try anything you like, but it will be perfectly useless. "'I'll let him have any quack nostrum you and he wish, "'as long as it doesn't injure his health or make you put off the operation. "'There are X-rays and ultraviolet rays and violet leaves and radium. "'There are fresh cures for cancer discovered every day, "'and what's the result? "'They only make people put off the operation "'till it's no longer possible to operate. "'Naturally, I will welcome any further opinion you want.' Now, Godfrey Symes is easily the first authority on this subject, and has a far higher percentage of cures to his credit than anyone else. No, I don't want any fresh opinion, said I. Very well, I'll have him carefully watched. By the way, can't you stop in town and dine with me? There are one or two people coming, and among them a perfectly mad spiritualist who has more messages from the other world than I ever get on my telephone. Trunk calls, eh? I wonder where the exchange is. "'Do come. You like cranks, I know.' "'I can't, I'm afraid,' said I. "'I've got a couple of guests coming to stay with me today down in the country. "'They are both cranks. One's a medium.' He laughed. "'Well, I can only offer you one crank, and you've got two,' he said. "'I must get back to the wards. 
I'll write to you in about a week's time or so, unless there's any urgency, which I don't foresee, and I should suggest you're coming up to tell Parks. Goodbye. I caught my train at Charing Cross with about three seconds to spare, and we slid clanking out over the bridge through the cold, dense air. Snow had been falling intermittently since morning, and when we got out of the grime and fog of London it was lying thickly on field and hedgerow, retarding by its reflection of such light as lingered the oncoming of darkness, and giving to the landscape an aloof and lonely austerity. All day I had felt that drowsiness which accompanies snowfall, and sometimes, half losing myself in a doze, my mind crept like a thing crawling about in the dark over what Godfrey Symes had told me. For all these years Parks, as much friend as servant, had given me his faithfulness and devotion, and now, in return for that, all that apparently I could do was to tell him of his plight. It was clear from what the surgeon had said that he expected a serious disclosure, and I knew from the experience of two friends of mine who had been in his condition what might be expected of this exploratory operation. Exactly similar had been these cases. There was clear evidence of an internal growth, possibly not malignant, and in each case the same dismal sequence had followed. The growth had been removed, and within a couple of months there had been a recrudescence of it. Indeed, surgery had proved no more than a pruning knife which had stimulated that which the surgeon had hoped to extirpate into swifter activity. And that, apparently, was the best chance that Symes held out. The rest of the treatments were but rubbish or quackery. My mind crawled away towards another subject. Probably the two visitors whom I expected, Charles Hope and the medium whom he was bringing with him, were in the same train as I— and I ran over in my mind all that he had told me of Mrs. Forrest. It was certainly an odd story he had brought me two days before. Mrs. Forrest was a medium of considerable reputation in psychical circles, and had produced some very extraordinary book tests which by all accounts seemed inexplicable, except on a spiritualistic hypothesis, and no imputation of trickery had, at any rate as yet, come near her. When in trance she spoke and wrote, as is invariably the case with mediums, under the direction of a certain control, that is to say, a spiritual and discarnate intelligence, which for the time was in possession of her. But lately there had been signs that a fresh control had inspired her, the nature of whom, his name and his identity, was at present unknown. And then came the following queer incident— Last week only, when in trance, and apparently under the direction of this new control, she began describing in considerable detail a certain house where the control said he had work to do. At first the description aroused no association in Charles Hope's mind, but as it went on it suddenly struck him that Mrs. Forrest was speaking of my house in Tilling. She gave its general features, its position in a small town on a hill, its walled-in garden— and then went on to speak with great minuteness of a rather peculiar feature in the house. She described a big room built out in the garden a few yards away from the house itself, at right angles to its front, and approached by half a dozen stone steps. There was a railing, so she said, on each side of them, and into the railing were twisted, like snake coils, the stems of a tree which bore pale mauve flowers. This was all a correct description of my garden-room, and the wistaria which writhes in and out of the railings which line the steps. 
She then went on to speak of the interior of the room. At one end was a fireplace, at the other a big bow window looking out onto the street and the front of the house, and there were two other windows opposite each other, in one of which was a table, while the other, looking out onto the garden, was shadowed by the tree that twisted itself about the railings. Bookcases lined the walls, and there was a big sofa at right angles to the fire. Now, all this, though it was a perfectly accurate description of a place that, as far as could be ascertained, Mrs. Forrest had never seen, might conceivably have been derived from Charles Hope's mind, since he knew the room well, having often stayed with me. But the medium added a detail which could not conceivably have been thus derived, for Charles believed it to be incorrect. She said that there was a big piano near the bow window, while he was sure that there was not. But... Oddly enough, I had hired a piano only a week or so ago, and it stood in the place that she mentioned. The control then repeated that there was work for him to do in that house. There was some situation or complication there in which he could help, and he could get through better, that is, make a clearer communication, if the medium could hold a séance there. Charles Hope then told the control that he believed he knew the house that he had been speaking of, and promised to do his best. Shortly afterwards Mrs. Forrest came out of trance, and, as usual, had no recollection of what had passed. So Charles came to me with the story exactly as I have given it here, and though I could not think of any situation or complication in which an unknown control of a medium that I had never seen could be of assistance, the whole thing, and in especial that detail about the piano, was so odd that I asked him to bring the medium down for a sitting or a series of sittings. The day of their arrival was arranged, but when three days ago Parks had to go into hospital I was inclined to put them off. But a neighbour away for a week obligingly lent me a parlour-maid, and I let the engagement stand. With regard to the situation in which the control would be of assistance, I can but assure the reader that, as far as I thought about it all, I only wondered whether it was concerned with a book on which I was engaged, which dealt, if I could ever succeed in writing it, with psychical affairs. But at present I could not get on with it at all. I had made half a dozen beginnings, which had all gone into the waste-paper basket." My guests proved not to have come on the same train as I, but arrived shortly before dinner-time, and after Mrs. Forrest had gone to her room, I had a few words with Charles, who told me exactly how the situation now stood. "'I know your caution and your captiousness in these affairs,' he said, "'so I have told Mrs. Forrest nothing about the description she gave of this house, or the reason why I asked her to come here. I said only, as we settled, that you were a great friend of mine and immensely interested in psychical affairs, but a country mouse whom it was difficult to get up to town. But you would be delighted if she would come down for a few days and give some sittings here. And does she recognise the house, do you think? I asked. No sign of it. As I told you, when she comes out of trance she never seems to have the faintest recollection of what she has said or written. We shall have a séance, I hope, tonight, after dinner? "'Certainly, if she will,' said I. "'I thought we had better hold it in the garden-room, "'for that was the place that was so minutely described. "'It's quite warm there, central heating and a fire, "'and it's only half a dozen yards from the house. "'I've had the snow swept from the steps.' 
Mrs. Forrest turned out to be a very intelligent woman, well-spiced with humour, gifted with a sane appreciation of the comforts of life, and most agreeably furnished with the small change of talk. She was inclined to be stout, but carried herself with briskness, and neither in body nor mind did she suggest that she was one who held communication with the unseen. There was nothing wan or occult about her. Her general outlook on life appeared to be rather materialistic than otherwise, and she was very interesting on the topic when, about halfway through dinner, the subject of her mediumship came on the conversational board. "'My gifts, such as they are,' she said, "'have nothing to do with this person who sits eating and drinking and talking to you. She, as Mr. Hope may have told you, is quite expunged before the subconscious part of me, that is the latest notion, is it not, gets into touch with discarnate intelligences. Until that happens, the door is shut, and when it is over, the door is shut again, and I have no recollection of what I have said or written. The control uses my hand and my voice, but that is all. I know no more about it than a piano on which a tune has been played.' "'And there is a new control who has lately been using you?' I asked. She laughed. "'You must ask Mr. Hope about that,' she said. "'I know nothing whatever of it. "'He tells me it is so, and he tells me, don't you, Mr. Hope, "'that he hasn't any idea who or what the new control is. "'I look forward to its development. "'My idea is that the control has to get used to me, "'as in learning a new instrument.' I assure you I am as eager as any one that he should gain facility in communication through me. I hope indeed that we are to have a séance tonight. The talk veered again, and I learned that Mrs. Forrest had never been in Tilling before, and she was enchanted with the snowy, moonlit glance she had had of its narrow streets and ancient residences. She liked, too, the atmosphere of the house. It seemed tranquil and kindly, "'Especially so was the little drawing-room where we had assembled before dinner. "'I glanced at Charles. "'I had thought of proposing that we should sit in the garden-room,' I said, "'if you don't mind half a dozen steps in the open. It adjoins the house.' "'Just as you wish,' she said, "'although I think we have excellent conditions in here without going there.' "'This confirmed her statement that she had no idea, after she had come out of trance, what she had said, "'for otherwise she must have recognised at the mention of the garden-room her own description of it. "'And when, soon after dinner, we adjourned there, it was clear that, unless she was acting an inexplicable part, "'the sight of it twanged no chord of memory. "'There we made the very simple arrangements to which she was accustomed.' As the procedure in such sittings is possibly unfamiliar to the reader, I will describe quite shortly what our arrangements were. We had no idea what form these manifestations, if there were any, might take, and therefore we, Charles and I, were prepared to record them on the spot. We three sat round a small table about a couple of yards from the fire, which was burning brightly. Mrs. Forrest seated herself in a big armchair. Exactly in front of her on the table were a pencil and a block of paper, in case, as often happened, the manifestation took the form of automatic script, writing, that is, while in a state of trance. Charles and I sat on each side of her, also provided with pencil and paper, in order to take down what she said, if and when, as lawyers say, the control took possession of her. In case materialised spirits appeared, a phenomenon not as yet seen at her séances, our idea was to jot down as quickly as possible whatever we saw, or thought we saw. 
Should there be wrappings or movements of furniture, we were to make similar notes of our impressions. The lamp was then turned down so that just a ring of flame encircled the wick, but the firelight was of sufficient brightness, as we tested before the seance began, to enable us to write and to see what we had written. The red glow of it illuminated the room, and it was settled that Charles should note by his watch the time at which anything occurred. Occasionally throughout the seance a bubble of coal gas caught fire, and then the whole room started into strong light. I had given orders that my servants should not interrupt the sitting at all unless somebody rang the bell from the garden room. In that case it was to be answered. Finally, before the seance began, we bolted all the windows on the inside and locked the door. We took no other precautions against trickery, though, as a matter of fact, Mrs. Forrest suggested that she should be tied into her chair, but in the firelight any movement of hers would be so visible that we did not adopt this precaution. Charles and I had settled to read to each other the notes we made during the sitting, and cut out anything that both of us had not recorded. The accounts, therefore, of this sitting and of that which followed next day, are founded on our joint evidence. The sitting began. Mrs. Forrest was leaning back at ease with her eyes open and her hands on the arms of her chair. Then her eyes closed and a violent trembling seized her. That passed, and shortly afterwards her head fell forward and her breathing became very rapid. Presently that quieted to a normal pace again, and she began to speak at first in a scarcely audible whisper, and then in a high, shrill voice, quite unlike her usual tones. I do not think that in all England there was a more disappointed man than I during the next half-hour. Starlight, it appeared, was in control, and Starlight was a personage of platitudes. She had been a nun in the time of Henry the Seventh, and her work was to help those who had lately passed over— she was very busy and very happy, and was in the third sphere where they had a great deal of beautiful music. We must all be good, said Starlight, and it didn't matter much whether we were clever or not. Love was the great thing. We had to love each other and help each other, and death was no more than the gate of life, and everything would be tremendously jolly. Starlight, in fact, might be better described as claptrap. And I began thinking about Parks. And then I ceased to think about Parks, for the shrill moralities of starlight ceased, and Mrs. Forrest's voice changed again. The stale facility of her utterances stopped, and she began to speak quite unintelligibly in a voice of low baritone range. Charles leaned across the table and whispered to me. "'That's the new control,' he said. The voice that was speaking stumbled and hesitated. It was like that of a man trying to express himself in some language which he knew very imperfectly. Sometimes it stopped altogether, and in one of these pauses I asked, "'Can you tell us your name?' There was no reply, but presently I saw Mrs. Forrest's hand reach out for the pencil. Charles put it into her fingers and placed the writing-pad more handily for her. I watched the letters, in capitals, being traced." They were made hesitatingly, but were perfectly legible. Swallow, she wrote, and again swallow, and stopped. The bird? I asked. The voice spoke in answer. Now I could hear the words uttered in that low baritone voice. No, not a bird, it said. 
not a bird, but it flies. I was utterly at sea. My mind could form no conjecture whatever as to what was meant. And then the pencil began writing again. Swallow, swallow, and then with a sudden briskness of movement, as if the guiding intelligence had got over some difficulty, it wrote, Swallowtail. This seemed more abstrusely senseless than ever. The only connection with swallowtail in my mind was a swallow-tailed coat, but who ever heard of a swallow-tailed coat flying? I've got it, said Charles. Swallowtail butterfly, is that it? There came three sudden raps on the table, loud and startling. These raps, I may explain in the usual code, mean yes. As if to confirm it, the pencil began to write again, and spelled out Swallowtail Butterfly. Is that your name? I asked. There was one rap which signifies no, followed by three which means yes. I had not the slightest idea of what it all signified. Indeed, it seemed to signify nothing at all. But the sitting had become extraordinarily interesting, if only for its very unexpectedness. The control was trying to establish himself by three methods simultaneously, by the voice, by the automatic writing, and by rapping. But how a swallow-tail butterfly could assist in some situation which was now existing in my house was utterly beyond me. Then an idea struck me. The swallow-tail butterfly no doubt had a scientific name, and that we could easily ascertain, for I knew that there was on my shelves a copy of Newman's Butterflies and Moths of Great Britain, a sumptuous volume bound in Morocco, which I had won as an entomological prize at school. A moment's search gave me the book, and by the firelight I turned up the description of this butterfly in the index. Its scientific name was Papilio Macaon. "'Is Macaon your name?' I asked. The voice came clear now. Yes, I am Macaon, it said. With that came the end of the seance, which had lasted not more than an hour. Whatever the power was that had made Mrs. Forrest speak in that male voice and to struggle through that roundabout method of swallow, swallowtail, Macaon to establish its identity, it now began to fail. Mrs. Forrest's pencil made a few illegible scribbles, she whispered a few inaudible words, and presently, with a stretch and a sigh, she came out of trance. We told her that the name of the control was established, but apparently Macaon meant nothing to her. She was much exhausted, and very soon I took her across to the house to go to bed, and presently rejoined Charles. "'Who was Macaon, anyway?' he asked. "'He sounds classical.' more in your line than mine. I remembered enough Greek mythology to supply elementary facts while I hunted for a particular book about Athens. Macaon was the son of Asclepios, I said, and Asclepios was the Greek god of healing. He had precincts, hydropathic establishments, where people went to be cured. The Romans called him Aesculapius. What can he do for you, then? asked Charles. You're fairly fit, aren't you? Not till he spoke did a light dawn on me. Though I had been thinking so much of Parks that day, I had not consciously made the connection. But Parks isn't, said I. Is that possible? By Jove, said he. I found my book and turned to the accounts of the precinct of Asclepios in Athens. Yes, Asclepios had two sons, I said, Machaon and Podalerios. 
In Homeric times, he wasn't a god, but only a physician, and his sons were physicians too. The myth of his godhead is rather a late one. I shut the book. Best not to read any more, I said. If we know all about Asclepios, we shall probably be suggesting things to the medium's mind. Let's see what Machaon can tell us about himself, and we can verify it afterwards. It was therefore with no further knowledge than this on the subject of Machaon that we proposed to hold another séance the next day. All morning the bitter air had been laden with snow, and now the street in front of my house, a byway at the best in the slender traffic of the town, lay white and untrodden, save on the pavement where a few passengers had gone by. Mrs. Forrest had not appeared at breakfast, and from then till lunchtime I sat in the bow window of the garden room, for the warmth of the central heating, of which a stack of pipes was there installed, and for securing the utmost benefit of light that penetrated this cowl of snow-laden sky, busy with belated letters. The drowsiness that accompanies snowfall weighed heavily on my faculties, but as far as I can assert anything, I can assert that I did not sleep. From one letter I went on to another, and then for the sixth or seventh time I tried to open my story. It promised better now than before, and searching for a word that would not come to my pen, I happened to look up along the street, which lay in front of me. I expected nothing. I was thinking of nothing but my work. Probably I had looked up like that a dozen times before, and had seen the empty street, with snow lying thickly on the roadway. But now— the roadway was not untenanted. Someone was walking down the middle of it, and his aspect, incredible though it seemed, was not startling. Why I was not startled, I have no idea. I can only say that the vision appeared perfectly natural. The figure was that of a young man, whose hair, black and curly, lay crisply over his forehead, a large white cloak reaching down to his knees enveloped him, and he had thrown the end of it over his shoulder. Below his knees his legs and feet were bare. So too was the arm up to the elbow with which he pressed his cloak to him. And there he was, walking briskly down the snowy street. As he came directly below the window where I sat, he raised his head and looked at me directly, and smiled. And now I saw his face. There was the low brow, the straight nose, the curved and sunny mouth, the short chin, and I thought to myself that this was none other than the Hermes of Praxiteles, he whose statue at Olympia makes all those who look on it grow young again. There, anyhow, was a boyish Greek god stepping blithely and with gay incomparable grace along the street, and raising his face to smile at this stolid middle-aged man who blankly regarded him. Then, with the certainty of one returning home, he mounted the steps outside the front door, and seemed to pass into and through it. Certainly he was no longer in the street, and so real and solid-seeming had he been to my vision that I jumped up, ran across the few steps of garden, and went into the house, and I should not have been amazed if I had found him standing in the hall. But there was no one there, and I opened the front door. The snow lay smooth and untrodden down the centre of the road where he had walked, and on my doorstep. And at that moment the memory of the séance the evening before, about which up to now I had somehow felt distrustful and suspicious, passed into the realm of sober fact. 
for had not Macaon just now entered my house, with a smile as of recognition, on some friendly mission? We sat again that afternoon by daylight, and now I must suppose the control was more actively and powerfully present, for hardly had Mrs. Forrest passed into trance than the voice began, louder than it had been the night before, and far more distinct. He, Macaon, I must call him, seemed to be anxious to establish his identity beyond all doubt, like some newcomer presenting his credentials, and he began to speak of the precincts of Asclepios in Athens. Often he hesitated for a word in English, often he put in a word in Greek, and, as he spoke, fragments of things I had learned when an archaeological student in Athens came back into my mind, and I knew that he was accurately describing the portico and the temple and the well. All this I tossed to the sceptic to growl and worry over and tear to bits, for certainly it seemed possible that my mind, holding these facts in its subconsciousness, was suggesting them to the medium's mind, who thereupon spoke of them, and, conveying them back to me, made me aware that I had known them. My forgotten knowledge of these things and of the Greek language came flooding back on me, as he told us, now half in Greek, and half in English, of the patients who came to consult the god, how they washed in the sacred well for purification, and lay down to sleep in the portico. They often dreamed, and in the interpretation of their dreams, which they told to the priest next day, lay the indication of the cure. Or sometimes the god healed more directly, and accompanied by the sacred snake walked among the sleepers, and by his touch made them whole. His temple was hung with ex-votos, the gifts of those whom he had cured. And at Epidaurus, where was another shrine of his, there were great mural tablets recording the same. Then the voice stopped, and as if to prove identity by another means, the medium drew the pencil and paper to her, and in Greek characters, unknown apparently to her, she traced the words, Machaon, son of Asclepios. There was a pause, and I asked a direct question, which now had been long simmering in my mind. "'Have you come to help me about Parks?' I asked. "'Can you tell me what will cure him?' The pencil began to move again, tracing out characters in Greek. It wrote, Phi, Epsilon, Gamma, Gamma, Omicron, Sigma, Xi, and repeated it. I did not at once guess what it meant, and asked for an explanation. There was no answer, and presently the medium stirred, stretched herself and sighed, and came out of trance. She took up the paper on which she had written. "'Did that come through?' she asked. "'And what does it mean? I don't even know the characters.' Then suddenly the possible significance of Phi, Epsilon, Gamma, Gamma, Omicron, Sigma, Xi flashed on me, and I marvelled at my slowness. Fengos, a beam of light, a ray, and the letter Xi, the equivalent of the English X. That had come in direct answer to my question as to what would cure Parks, and it was without hesitation or delay that I wrote to Symes. I reminded him that he had said that he had no objection to any possible remedy, provided it was not harmful, being tried on his patient, and I asked him to treat him with X-rays. The whole sequence of events had been so frankly amazing that I believe the veriest sceptic would not have done otherwise than I did. Our sittings continued, but after this day we had no further evidence of this second control. 
It looked as if the intelligence, even the most incredulous, will allow me for the sake of convenience to call that intelligence Machaon, that had described this room and told Mrs. Forrest that he had work to do here, had finished his task. Machaon had said, or so my interpretation was, that X-rays would cure Parks. In justification of this view, it is proper to quote from a letter which I got from Symes a week later. There is no need for you to come up to break to Parks that an operation lies in front of him. In answer to your request, and without a grain of faith in its success, I treated him with X-rays, which I assured you were useless. Today, to speak quite frankly, I don't know what to think, for the growth has been steadily diminishing in size and hardness, and it is perfectly evident that it is being absorbed and is disappearing. The treatment through which I put Parks is that of, and here he named a doctor, here in this hospital we have had patients to whom it brought no shadow of benefit. Often it had been continued on these deluded wretches till any operation which might possibly have been successful was out of the question owing to the encroachment of the growth. But from the first dose of the X-rays, Parks began to get better. The growth was first arrested and then diminished. I am trying to put the whole thing before you with as much impartiality as I can command. So, on the other side, you must remember that Parks's was never a proved case of cancer. I told you that it could not be proved till the exploratory operation took place. All the symptoms pointed to cancer. You see, I am trying to save my own face. But my diagnosis, though confirmed by— here he named the other doctor again— may have been wrong. If he only had what we call a benign tumour, the case is not so extraordinary— there have been plenty of cases when a benign tumour has disappeared by absorption or what not. It is unusual, but by no means unknown. For instance, but Parks's case was quite different. I certainly believe he had a cancerous growth, and thought that an operation was inevitable if his life was to be saved. Even then the most I hoped for was an alleviation of pain as the disease progressed, and a year or two more at the most of life. Instead, I apply another remedy at your suggestion, and if he goes on as he has been doing, the growth will be a nodule in another week or two, and I should expect it to disappear altogether. Taking everything into consideration, if you asked me the question whether this X-ray treatment was the cause of the cure, I should be obliged to say yes. I don't believe in such a treatment, but I believe it is curing him. I suppose that it was suggested to you by a fraudulent spiritualistic medium in a feigned trance who was inspired by Aesculapius or some exploded heathen deity, for I remember you said you were going down into the country for some spiritual business. Well, Parks is getting better, and I am so old-fashioned a fellow that I would sooner a patient of mine got better by incredible methods than died under my skilful knife. Of course, we trained people know nothing, but we have to act according to the best chances of our ignorance. I entirely believed that the knife was the only means of saving the man, and now, when I stand confuted, the only thing I can save is my honesty, which I hereby have done. Let me know at your leisure whether you just thought you would on your own idea like me to try X-rays, or whether some faked voice from the grave suggested it. Ever yours, Godfrey Symes. P.S. If it was some beastly voice from the grave, you might tell me in confidence who the medium was. I want to be fair. That is the story. The reader will explain it according to his temperament.
And, as I have told Parks, who is now back with me again, to look into the garden room before post-time and take a registered packet to the office, it is time I got it ready for him. So, here is the completed packet in manuscript, to be sent to the printers. From my window I shall see him go briskly along the street, down which Machaon walked on a snowy morning.